Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. This month we were lucky enough to attend the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, which took place in Boston. And one of the lectures we went to see was given by the cosmologist Max Tegmark, who has suggested that rather than just being incredibly well described by mathematics, our universe is actually a mathematical structure. So after his lecture, we went to speak to him to find out more about this mathematical universe hypothesis. And for want of a better space, we took him to a strange dark hall, which was connected to the convention center and had some sort of building work going on in it. So that explains the strange noises you'll hear in the background of this interview. My colleague, Rachel Thomas, started off the questions. So um, it's really nice to meet you, particularly in the unusual surroundings of a darkened, empty, stripped out ballroom, I guess. Um, but we really enjoyed your talk. Uh, where you you had this underlying thesis that um, the universe is actually a mathematical structure. So how did you get to that point of of deciding that the universe was a mathematical structure? I've always been fascinated by big questions. The bigger the better. That's why I chose to go into cosmology because we're studying the universe which is pretty big and Seeing all these hints around us of mathematics, of equations describing things well, it kept making me feel that there must be an explanation for this. Many of my colleagues dismissed this and said, it's just that um, mathematics is something we humans have invented because it's convenient and so on. And I respect that point of view, but I really think there's more to it. Just like um, we build confidence in scientific theories by getting more and more evidence for it, we've I've, we built more and more. I build more and more confidence in this idea from more evidence, because back when uh, the Pythagoreans started talking about this and Galileo described nature as a book written in the language of mathematics, he didn't know about all the additional beautiful regularities that lay in store. It gave us Newtonian gravity, Einstein's general relativity, quantum mechanics, and so on. And when Wigner, in the 1960s, faced with this new, stronger evidence, wrote this famous article talking about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences as a mystery, calling out for an explanation, he didn't realize that there was still more in store, that the standard model of particle physics was just about to be discovered. And now we have the Higgs boson, which is yet another beautiful prediction which was made not with a telescope, but with a pencil using mathematics. And I think this is telling us something very fundamental, and it's not just a fluke. And what I think it's telling us is that nature really is completely mathematical. I think the reason we keep discovering more and more accurate mathematical approximation to nature is because complicated mathematical structures can be approximated by simpler ones. And what we've been doing bit by bit is discovering more and more accurate approximations in mathematics to the true mathematics, which we haven't found yet. So there's always been this, um, you know, we say it all the time, mathematics is the language of the universe. So what you're saying isn't just that mathematics is the best language to describe the universe. You're saying that the universe is inherently mathematical. Most of my colleagues say that our universe is approximately described by mathematics. 
I say that our universe is mathematics in a very specific sense of being so-called mathematical structure. Basically, a, a mathematical object consisting of these purely abstract entities and, and relations between them. For example, the cube is a mathematical structure where the elements are its six faces and the relations are which faces are touching which ones. The numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and so on, are again abstract elements in that the properties of the number five are not given by whether we call it five or fünf or cinco or write it out in, in some funny computer language, but by the relations that five has with four and with six and so on. And it's exactly the same when we turn to more complicated mathematical structures like the ones we use a lot in physics. Calabi-Yau manifolds, pseudo-Riemannian manifolds, Hilbert spaces, you name it, that the abstract entities of these things, for example, points, they don't have any properties at all intrinsically. The only properties that are given to them are from how they're related to the other elements of this. And this beautifully can solve the famous infinite regress problem because if you say, ah, oh, what is an orange made of? Oh, it's made of cells. What are the cells made of? Oh, they're made of molecules. What are they made of? They're made of atoms. What are the atoms made of? Well, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Oh, what are the protons made of? They're made of quarks. What are the quarks made of? Uh, you know, it seems like this is never going to end. And you can always follow any answer by yet another question, just like my kids used to do when they were younger. But now there actually, there's actually an end to it because at the bottom level you get down to something who has, that has no properties at all other than purely mathematical properties. So you're thinking of and at the bottom of it you get down to a physical entity that has only mathematical properties or you, you end up with an abstract entity because yeah. then you still need to make the transition to the physical. Exactly. So if you look at, the, for example, those quirks. What, what, you know, if I look at a cat, hmm. so what properties does a cat have? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's black. Maybe it has a very nice smell that I feel very familiar with. Maybe it's soft and furry and so on. Hmm. But if I look at a, if I look at an up quirk, what properties does it have? Well, uh, or if I look at an electron, what properties does it have? It has an electric charge of minus one. But the word charge is just the word we humans invented. The only thing it actually has is that minus one there in a certain table of numbers. Then it has a lepton number of plus one. Then it has a spin, which is one half, and so on. And all the properties are actually just numbers. That's all there is to say about the electron. And then that, so the electron is a mathematical object in the sense that it has no properties at all other than purely mathematical properties. So we see that our world seems to be made of these things that only have mathematical properties on the, on the micro scale. And then when we zoom out and look at the larger scales, we again see that the basic physical ideas that are most important, like space itself, for example, has only mathematical properties. It has the property three, the number of dimensions. That's a number. That's a mathematical property. It has curvature, which you can def define by what Einstein called the four the, the rank four Riemann tensor, it's a mathematical thing. It has a property called topology of how it's connected together on itself and so on. And mathematicians write all these papers talking about spaces 
as, as mathematical things. And they've now incorporated geometry as, as part of mathematics. And I think all these hints are pointing us in the direction that, in fact, everything around us fundamentally is just one single mathematical object. So but do you think you, you, you arrived at, or you were saying in your talk, um, that if you take as given that there is an external reality, yes. then we need to describe it without bringing in any human baggage such as language, and therefore we're only left with mathematics when it comes to the end. But how do you, how do you justify the thought that mathematics is um, separated from human baggage, especially if you have things like incompleteness? And so th that's a wonderful question. Let me first talk about the language aspect, because... The word, the whole idea of a language seems to suggest that you have to have there's something arbitrary about it. You have to yeah. have make some choice for what the words are going to be called. And we, for example, when we talk about the the numbers one, two, three, four, five, we've given them names. And in, in uh, Chinese and Swedish, you give them different names. But the beauty of it is that when you rigorously define the numbers one, two, three, four, five. They're actually defined. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're about to be run over by a truck, but we're all right for now, I think. In a way which is independent of the language. You define what's, well, like you define an equivalence. You, you say that this descript between descriptions, you say that the description of something, of the numbers in English and the numbers in Spanish, are equivalent if you can write a dictionary that says this word in English corresponds to that word in Spanish. And, and when you translate them, all the relations still hold. And then what you actually do is you say the, the very essence of the numbers is simply that which is independent of the choice of language. You look at the equivalence class of all descriptions of five. And that's what five really is. So that strips away beautifully all the arbitrariness. If you look at mathematical notation written on a blackboard while I'm giving a lecture at MIT, that the symbol I use for five. Obviously, you could pick something else. In fact, in India, they use a different symbol for five. But you can explain how all these different choices of symbols linked up to each other and then sweep away all all these equivalences, and you get left with just the pure mathematics. It's a, it's a little bit like when you play chess. We choose to represent the chess game by putting white and black pieces on a board. But someone else might play the exact same game on a, on a board which is instead green and white. Some might play it on a computer, so it's a different representation of the game, but it's still the same game Oops. if you replay it. Yeah. And if you take a very famous game, like the one called the Immortal Game, it doesn't matter what board you play on it, it's, you would still refer to that as the same particular chess game, where there's this beautiful sequence where one of the players sacrifices both rooks and the queen and then makes a beautiful checkmate with just some minor pieces. Even if you write that game out as in a newspaper with just algebra, just abstract notation, stuff like E2, E4, and so on, it's still the same game. The so game itself. And, so and when we talk about a mathematical structure in mathematics, it's exactly like that. When we talk about the cube, mm. we mean what's left, independent of the description that you use. And, but still, how, how would you cope? I mean, there was a gentleman who asked that question in your talk, because there is a famous result by Gödel saying that in a, any sufficiently axiomatic, sufficiently complex axiomatic system, you're going to have 
undecidable things or contradictions. Yeah. So, so how does that fit in with that, though? Because then if the mathematical, if the universe is a mathematical structure itself, how do these undecidabilities or inconsistencies fit in there? That's a, a great question. I think that our physical reality actually corresponds to a mathematical structure which is completely rigorously defined with right. nothing ambiguous about it, which actually rules out mm. a lot of mathematical structures that have these yeah. things in them. And it's very interesting to look at where does that all come from? So it all comes from infinity. Mm. Yeah. And do we actually have any evidence in the world around us that there is anything truly infinite? Mm. No, we don't. We don't we have know. It in our heads, but I guess that doesn't. We have it in our heads, and we have it because it's a very useful uh, approximation. We, there are two kinds of infinity, both infinitely big things, but we've never seen anything infinitely far away, or infinitely powerful, and also the idea of the continuum—that between every two points, there's an infinite number of other points. But we don't know that for sure either. We've never measured anything in physics better than 16 decimal places. And to describe even a single distance exactly, the position of a single idealized particle like this, you wouldn't classically need an infinite amount of information, an infinite number of decimal places. I think that's just fiction, really. We, you can hear me right now because there are sound waves moving through the air. And the simplest way to describe these sound waves, which is how I would teach it at MIT, is to say there's this continuum of air. At every point, these infinitely many points, the air has a pressure and a temperature and a density and a velocity. And then you can write these beautiful partial differential equations down called the Navier-Stokes equations. And you can solve them and you see, ah, there are these sound waves and it's beautiful and it's simple. The truth is actually more complicated. There is no infinity here. There are actually just these atoms bouncing around. But it turns out to be simpler to approximate this as being infinite infinitely many, infinitesimally tiny things. Yeah. And uh, in the same way, infinity is so seductively simple compared to discrete things that I think it might well be that every single place in physics where we've assumed the infinite, it's been for convenience. Mm. So, so do you think that um, instead of... So the reason it's quite hard to think of the universe as a mathematical structure is because we think of a mathematical structure as being abstract and theoretical and of no real... It's like, it's like air. It doesn't have a weight to it. So do you think it's more, rather than having to change our perspective of the physical reality as being made of mathematics, do you think maybe we need to change our perspective of how we think of mathematics, that there's a, there's a, a physical reality to mathematics as opposed to the other way around? Fundamentally, uh, we should shift our views so that they become the same and merge. I think it's fascinating because of the computer revolution how we've actually come to get used to the idea that mathematics can describe more than just numbers. For example, the sounds that you're hearing now, my recorded voice, is just a bunch of numbers sitting on some hard drive or transmitted to the internet. When you look at a video, it's again just rip a bunch of numbers cleverly arranged. When um, you press a button on the keyboard, that letter is represented by a number. So we've gotten used to the idea that uh, a picture, even though it feels very non-mathematical, can be a completely mathematical thing, a table of numbers. 
And actually, in physics, we've come to realize that it's very similar. If you look at, for example, light in a room, light rays going around in different directions, they're described by this electromagnetic field. What is that? It's really just a bunch of numbers at each place in three-dimensional space. So whereas an image on your computer screen has a number in a two-dimensional grid, if we think of the room divided into a three-dimensional grid of voxels, very, very small, and in each one there's a bunch of numbers that specifies what the electromagnetism is doing right there. There, you, Then you have already light and radio waves described, which is a physical thing. If you're willing to throw in some more numbers in these voxels, you can get numbers which describe what the electrons are doing and the quarks are doing, and in fact, what the Higgs boson is doing, what all of the physical stuff is up to in our universe. So when you... So maybe, maybe yeah. we're already there. Maybe some people are already visualizing the mathematics as, as a physical Way. Certainly many of my physics colleagues in theoretical physics are already, at least subconsciously, describing everything in terms of math. Mm. It's most obvious when you talk to the string theorists. But nonetheless, I would say most of them don't go, are not come, don't go all the way, but say, still, it's just somehow yeah, an approximation and an approximate description. And it's hard to make this identification between mathematical and the physical. That's you know, what I find difficult as well. That's why it's easy to think of it as a description, the mathematics, but it's harder to yeah. think of it as a reality. But you were saying also that, this is, that, that your view about the mathematical universe is a very optimistic view because it means that we have access pretty much to anything. We can describe everything then, eventually if we're t sufficiently creative. Exactly, because if, if it turns out that ultimately mathematics is just an approximate description and there's some aspects of reality which is intrinsically non-mathematical which cannot be completely described in any sort of formal way, that means that we humans are facing a roadblock in the future of physics beyond which we will never be able to understand. Which is a bit depressing. Whereas if if I'm right, and, and everything ultimately is completely mathematical, then there really is no roadblock. And uh, everything is, at least in principle, open for us to try to understand. And we're really limited only by our own imagination and ingenuity. So the mathematical universe is a pretty exciting place, then. Yeah. I think this is the optimistic view. And tell you what, we don't know for sure whether the mathematical universe hypothesis is true. But I think it's very good strategy to act as if it is true, because there's no more surefire way of failing to make progress than by convincing yourself that it's impossible and not even trying. So if we're going to fail in the future of physics, we should really go down swinging and at least <laughs> try to look for those regularities and patterns. And that was the end of our interview. If you'd like to find out more about the mathematical universe hypothesis, Tegmark has written a book on it called The Mathematical Universe, which will be published by Penguin and Random House soon. And that's the end of the Plus podcast. My name is Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening and bye bye.